Welcome to Parma Christian Fellowship Church's weekly sermon podcast. All of our sermons are available for listening and download at pcf.church. May God's word enrich you today. We are doing a study in the book of Revelation. I listened, I'm, this is going to be a little bit scattered because I have so much stuff going on in my brain right now. It's just rattling around. Uh, I have been doing a huge amount of research with everybody I can find everywhere, and frequently people that are not going to this church say to me, what in the world possesses you to do a study in the book of Revelation in your church? And, uh, and I say, well, that's interesting because I've had this in my mind for about 10 years, and the opportunity afforded itself, and I thought, what better time than right now uh, to be able to examine this incredible book? I am finding all kinds of absolutely amazing things about the book of Revelation as I study it. Last week we talked a little bit, and if you want to hear, I'm not going to redo all of that, but it's on our, our messages are on YouTube, and you always listen to those. Again, we looked at the role of the four, of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. In my view, they are a Greco-Roman chorus in the middle of a play. This is actually written as a play. So I found online a website of Greco-Roman theater terms from some professor at Whitman College in Washington State. And he had his email address at the bottom. This was in 2003, so for all I know he's dead. And uh, so I wrote to the email, and on Monday this week, after last week's messages, Dr. Thomas Hines called me, and we talked for an hour and a half. This guy, he's a Christian. He's aware of the book of Revelation, but he's not an expert in the New Testament in any way. He is an expert in Greco-Roman theater. And as we talked about what I'm discovering in the book of Revelation, he was absolutely fascinated. He said nobody has ever brought those things up. All the years he taught, he's been retired for 10 years, so the last 50 years, he said, never has it. He said, but what you're saying actually fits with the theater. He said, one of the things you'll be surprised about, and this is, I didn't know this last week, so I'm just adding this piece to last week's message. The seven churches of Revelation all had, every one of them, all seven, had magnificent theaters. The Ephesian one would seat over 5,000 people. The one at Thyatira would seat about 1,000. The one at Sardis would seat over 10,000 people. And he said what they did was they had Greek plays that went back four and 500 years, and they taught the children of their culture how to read and write by copying plays. That's how they taught them. And so we have copies of plays that span 700 years of Greek history where children and adults were writing and rewriting and learning the language accurately. And then they would perform parts of them. That was a huge thing to do in that culture. And as we talked, the idea of John writing a theatrical presentation for perhaps three or four readers or perhaps an entire ensemble he just was like, this is one of the most amazing things we've ever heard. So we're looking at this as a three-act play. 
not, not necessarily with theatrical instructions and all that, but that it would be done in Greco-Roman theater with the main structures of a, of a huge theatrical comedy. Now, a tragedy is when the main star of the show fails, when the Achilles or the uh, Alexander or the head person in the play dies at the end, loses the battle, doesn't get the girl, uh, the, whole th the whole world falls apart. Those are tragedies, and the Greeks actually loved watching tragedies. They rooted for the central character to lose. But the other side of it is a comedy, and what they did was they made the main character appear to lose in the middle of the play, and then suddenly he wins and judges all the evil and destruction around him. As John is expressing this book, almost every version, most of them, have the revelation being something Jesus owned or wrote or developed or created, and he delivers it to John. I do not take these three words as uh, from Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus. So all the way through this book, the objective is keep your eye on where Jesus is, what he is doing, how he is being celebrated, honored, how he is the center of the story. And as we do that, all the way through, we find that this book is perhaps one of the most celebratory, victorious descriptions of who Jesus is in the midst of an evil world. What's amazing is, as I've pulled people over the years, I've been doing this for years and years and years, how do you like doing your devotions from the book of Revelation? Oh, there's a few verses I like, and I read the end when it all works out well. But all the, the uh, seals and the trumpets and the bulls and the death and the plagues and the monsters and the seven-headed uh, de demonic thing with crowns all over, I don't get any of that. And I'm scared. I had one person say, I've never actually finished the book of Revelation because I get a few chapters in. I'm so scared. I don't want to read anymore. So the question then is, is that why God has the book of Revelation included in our Holy Scripture? When John starts out saying, I want to reveal to you who Jesus really is. And I think that's what he's trying to do. So today, we're looking at the end of what I call Act 1, which is Revelation 12, the whole, there's a, a prologue, and then there's 11 and a half chapters of leading up to this magnificent passage. And it's actually these six verses that I read over and over. I got up in the middle of the night, and I was reading, I just read through the book of Revelation from verse 1 to chapter 22, all the way through, again and again and again. I've probably done that 30 times. And as I read it, I began to see an entirely different pattern than seeing it one verse at a time or one section at a time or reading one little uh, segment at a time. I began to see the whole book. And if you went to a three-and-a-half-hour play that presented this book as its message, you would see it in an extremely different light. So Act 1, and, I, and Thomas Hines said they had... Acts, they had equipment that 
the, the uh, uh, scenes could rotate. They had them on rollers with a central point. They had a crane that would drop things in from overhead. I mean, just marvelous theatrical uh, structures in these magnificent Greek theaters uh, in the seven cities that John writes to. And there's hundreds of them all over the Mediterranean world, the Romans built. At the end of Act One, in my view, is this cli climactic moment that occurs. Now, I haven't put the passages up here because I want you to bring your Bibles uh, and be able to check on what's going, read along from your own version what's going on. Re uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out in pain and she, as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then there's a break. And then the word that's used next is picking up the story, a battle broke out. So I think that's the beginning of Act 2. We're going to look at that next week. At the end of Act 1, this is a massive amount of material, I think instead of describing church history, what's going to happen in the future, who the devil is, how evil works in the world, I think every part of these 11 chapters, 11 and a half chapters, is a description of what the Old Testament and the people of the world expected the Messiah to do for them. All the way through the Old Testament, there are passages that are called messianic passages. For example, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. It is 66 verses long, and it describes the Messiah who is coming for Israel, but describes him as suffering and being crucified. And in the day, the people, the scholars, the teacher said, that cannot be the Messiah. It cannot be him. Because the Messiah is coming to fix our problems. He is going to dry our tears. He is going to heal our infirmities. He is going to wipe out all of our enemies. He is going to reestablish the great and glorious golden age of our nation and fix all of our problems. That's the Messiah we want. That's the Messiah God is going to send. That is who is coming. 
And what God says throughout the entire Old Testament, through the prophets, from Judges, from the Psalms, from King Saul, from King David, from Samuel, from Elijah and Elisha, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, all the minor prophets is, you have not lived the way I have called you to live. You have compromised. You have good things. You've had great kings, but you didn't follow them. You've had lousy kings who are idol worshipers, and you followed them. You have compromised every, your goal, your purpose in the world, he says to his own people, was to reveal me to the world, to invite the entire world to come in and worship me. But you made me your little God. You think that Jehovah, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, exists to take care of you and solve all of your issues. And that is not who I am. And over and over, God appealed to them and commanded them and sent prophets to them and wrote songs for them and made signs in the sky for them so that they would understand our role as the chosen people of God is to explain to the whole world who creator God is and invite them to come and be part of his people. But they never did it. So if you read through the first 11 chapters of Revelation, there are all kinds of statements about this is what you want. This is what the Messiah is going to do. This is what the lamb who looks like he was slain has done. This is what the angels say to him. This is what the chorus sings to him. The four living creatures and the 24 elders always falling down. But in Act 2, in these next seven chapters, you're going to see the entire world is going to fall apart. Everything you have expected is completely wrong. Because you have demanded that God be your servant instead of you being God's servant. And the objective of being God's servant is not to fill around figuring out which micro law has been broken by somebody else, but to declare the mighty name of God and his glorious nature and his abundant presence to everyone and invite them to come. One of the most interesting stories in the book of Exodus is when the plagues happen to Egypt and the plagues resurface in here, you'll see a lot of that happening in here, that when the, the plagues happen in Egypt and finally the death of the firstborn, there's a little part that almost is missed by many ca casual readers and also by many serious readers. The people of Israel who did not believe God actually was going to kill the firstborn, just stayed outside their house. They didn't paint blood on their doors. They didn't uh, sacrifice a lamb. They didn't put the sign on their doors. But there were Egyptians who did. There were sojourners who did, other people from other countries. And when the people of Israel left under the freedom that God gave them, sojourners, Egyptians, and many others accompanied the people of God. And there were those who were from the chosen people of Israel who lost their firstborns, their animals, and their children because they refused to obey God. They just paid no attention to what he was saying. But those sojourners, those other nationalities, 
even the Egyptian slave holders that had mistreated them, if they did what God said out of faith, they were saved, they were preserved. So it wasn't having Jewish blood or Jewish lineage back to Abraham. It was obedience by faith to the word of God. And we tend to miss that. But the great deliverance of, of Exodus describes God's people announcing to the world, this is who he is, and he is, is absolutely serious about having the world come and worship and find life in his name. So as we read through these chapters, we find that every description that is made of Jesus or the events happening is as extreme as a statement can be made. In Hebrew and in Greek, if you want to say something, let me try and see if I can back up one. If you want to say something for emphasis, in our language, on my computer, I could make the word extreme bigger. I could make it bold. I can make it italicized, and I can make it underlined. If I really wanted to be creative, I could make it so it bursts out at you. I could put little extra stars behind. I mean, I can do all kinds of things to tell you that word is an extremely important word. It is vital. It is essential. It is our center point. But in Hebrew, all the, there's no capitals or smalls. Every letter is exactly the same. They're all little boxy letters, and, and they look visually similar. So how in the world do you create intensity? You say something two times, or three, or five, or eight, or 15 when it's repeated over and over and over and over, the hearers of that culture said, wow, they're serious about this. this why were there 10 plagues? Why 10? Because God is getting their attention. It's not just one. He could have brought the death of the firstborn first. Just get it over with. I mean, why waste time? But there's a plague and you have an option. And there's a plague and you have another option. And then there's a third plague and another option. You have a fourth plague, an option, a fifth plague, an option. Sixth plague, seventh plague, eighth plague, ninth plague, you have options. You can come, you can respond, you can listen to what God is saying. Eight times, nine times, ten times, and then finally at ten times, that's it. So it's the nature of creating the extreme intensity all the way through these 11 and a half chapters. That's happening over and over and over. One of the things fascinating to me about biblical scholarship is they take words that in Hebrew are the same word used over and over, and then they change the English translation. They soften it. They make it so that the same uh, pre pressure of language is not used each time. It's assuaged a little bit, softened a little bit, made it a little bit more easy to read. But that was the point, was to make it hard to read so that you went, oh my goodness, he just said that. Oh my goodness, he said it again. It's like a slap in the face. Wake up and pay attention to this. It's really, really amazing. So that had to do with that. So let me see if I go the wrong way. I did. In this section, we can, there's so much information. That, I mean, I'm writing a lot of this stuff down, so you'll have to read it later on. But one of the outstanding aspects of Revelation 1 through 12, and then a little bit beyond, is the use of the number seven, the
The use of the number seven, the use of the number three, both of those are extremely important. But number seven is used 36 times. 36 times as descriptions of what's happening in the book of Revelation. Seven is always seen as a divine number, but here's what's fascinating about the book of Revelation. It is used about three quarters of the time for the protagonist and about one quarter of the time for the antagonist. The dragon, the devil, he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. That seven comes up for the evil about a quarter of the time and for good about uh, three quarters of the time. The exceptional number seven has to do with an amazing number of factors in this book. It comes up over and over and over. The seven spirits of God. Wait a minute, I thought there was one Holy Spirit. We believe in a trinity, not a noinity. Seven spirits, the Father and the Son. Or a nunity, it would be a nunity. We believe, but it says seven spirits of God. And actually, the seven spirits of God comes up over and over and over in this book. The seven lampstands, the seven flames, the seven spirits, they are the seven spirits of God. He sends out his seven spirits. Seven refers to the magnificence, the intensity. It's almost like shouting the sense that the spirit is here and the spirit is moving, but he uses seven to be able to do that. The seven assemblies or the seven churches. The word ecclesia, we did this before and I'm not going to go into all the details, but the word ecclesia is translated in Acts 19 as the lawful assembly that met in the theater. Not a church, but it's the word ecclesia. The seven assemblies, the seven letters at the beginning of this book may have been to the city assemblies to get their attention that the Messiah is coming for the entire world. The seven lamps are there, the seven stars, seven seals. There is a lamb who is described as having seven eyes and seven horns, the lamb that was slain. Now the description shifts from the early part of the book to he is now characterized by seven. There are seven angels, and they keep coming up over and over, and then there's a different set of seven angels who also come and have roles. There are seven trumpets that are played in sequence. There are seven bowls of wrath, seven thunders that happen. I asked um, Dr. Hines if they had timpani drums. He said they had, not what we would call a timpani drum, but they had ways of making deep sounds that would make everybody in their seats jump, like thunderwood or lightning would. It's very interesting. Seven heads on various animals, seven crowns, that are there. The concept of seven comes up over and over and over and over, and it is ultimately the number of the Lamb of God, characteristic of him. So everywhere there's a seven, he is present. He is in, he's above, he's below, he's behind, he's the sound, he's the vision, he's the king, he's the angel, he's everywhere. And if there's a revelation of the Lamb who is seven by seven, the emphasis becomes overwhelming as to his presence. The second thing that happens throughout this entire section is the number of times this expression 
is used. Every tribe, every nation, every language, every people, every king, every dialect, the word, the phrasing is most often in fours, but sometimes it's one, sometimes three, and sometimes it's five. What is fascinating, and it's all throughout this entire section, the Messiah that is coming does not belong to you. He's not in your back pocket. One of the things fascinating is, I, and I've studied countless uh, commentaries on the book of Revelation. And in today's world, just bring this up with any group of Christians, and they'll have an opinion on how this benefits the church and destroys everybody in the world. That Jesus is coming back for us. He's going to fix everything for us. That it's a Christian believer who owns Jesus. And he will do what we want him to do so that we get rewarded. It's about our having a good outcome at the end. And the rest of the world, they're going to get it. People who didn't follow Jesus, they're in, they're in for a sad surprise. And, 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 and the, the destruction, the judgment, the viciousness, the anger of God, the power of God being unleashed is going to come against everybody in the whole world. But what's fascinating is throughout this book, over and over and over and over and over, when the Lamb appears, he is surrounded by people of every tribe, every nation, every language. The word nation is translated once in this book as the court of the Gentiles. It didn't refer to just the Gentiles. It was every na- it's the word ethne, the people the human beings, the entire human community. And over and over, the celebration of the Lamb, the recognition of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, His power, is recognized by the entire human community. At the end of the book, when he is describing the nature of the people that have gathered, he goes to even a further extreme than just merely repeating the same expression over and over. He says, every nation, tribe, language, and people on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and under the sea and everywhere you can imagine and all of the angels that are in the heavens and above the heavens and beneath as extreme language that Jesus is not in the possession of the church. The church is in the possession of Jesus. But we don't treat him that way. He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. He's mine. I get the promises. I get the victory. I'm the one who gets heaven at the end. It's all about me. And the book of Revelation says it is not about you. It is about the entire human community gathering together before this magnificent being who has given everything for the world to live. That comes up over and over and over. In fact, and I ha- have a list of this, and you can find this later. We won't take the time to do this. In chapter 5, there's one reference in chapter 2, but in chapter 5, once the preparation for the Messiah's birth is beginning to be announced, in chapter 5, verse 9, 7, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, 20, 21, and another one in 22, Every nation, tribe, people, language gathers before him. They're all included. There's no distinction. Now, the challenge is I don't know what to do with that theologically. 
I haven't got, I'm still learning, by the way, even while we're going through these, these 10 weeks of this series, I am trying to figure out how these various pieces fit. But the more I study, the more magnificent it is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and see him revealed in every level, breaking the expectations and the demands of the human community and establishing himself as God over all. So that's it. Then the last uh, point that I want to make today is in uh, Revelation chapter 10, as we're heading towards the birth description in chapter 12, the woman giving birth and uh, she and the de- dragon, like Herod, wanted to kill Jesus and brought everything, uh, killed a lot of the two-year-olds and under, remember all that story from the Gospel of Matthew. The statement is made in chapter 10 of Revelation, Revelation 10, verse 7. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God is about to be accomplished. So I wondered, I know that expression, mystery of God. So I went back to Paul's writings in Ephesians. And here's what Paul writes to the Ephesians, which is the first of the churches to receive a letter. Here's what Paul writes. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, you and the nations, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have written here briefly. When you read this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the nations are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, to the nations, the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers, to the authorities in all the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. He says in very, very plain, clear language, I know the mystery, the mystery of Jesus Christ. It is that he came, he died, he is risen from the dead, and therefore the whole world has confidence to come to God and to know him, and that through the church, 
the assignment is for us to make this known to principalities and powers all throughout the universe. That's our job. He's not our savior. We're his people, which is an entire flip of how we commonly understand the nature of the relationship between Jesus and the church. He's not ours. He is the savior of the world. And the, and the calling of God to us is make him known as he really is everywhere. We're going to be looking at Act 2, what I call Act 2. And I may actually be out of my mind on this. So study, get your Bible out, read through Revelation, and let's see who is this Jesus being revealed to us. The next act leads to his death, his crucifixion. And so we're going to see the change of tone from celebration and honor and glory and power and majesty and wisdom and thanks into incredible darkness as the entire world falls apart. But that is also not the end of the story. And uh, we are going to see more of who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Father, we've made Jesus a pocket, amulet. He's our safety device. He's the little plastic figurine we put on our dashboard to keep us safe. We pray to you in such a way that you have to do what we want because we want it. That all of the resources of the majesty of God is brought down to our needs and wants, our pleasures, our difficulties. This phenomenal book reveals Jesus. Center of the throne. Lightning and thunder proceed from him. Everyone in his environment falls on their faces before him. Whatever is in their hands is thrown to his feet. And he's born. He's born into a dangerous world where he is hunted. And the threat is incredibly real. So impress upon our hearts, our minds, our mouths, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our knees, who you really are, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.